Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, and welcome to episode number 148 of the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I am your host, Tracy Outsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here. Of course, you may subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com forward slash podcast. So I am going to start today with a little poem. So a wonderful woman named Sherry sent me an email, and this is what she said, or the gist of what she said. Recently, hello, Tracy. Recently, I discovered your website, podcasts, and Facebook page and participated in your training and Q&As last week. Game changers. My story, it's similar to other women's. I'm nearly 53, never diagnosed, but 99.9% sure I have ADHD. Nine out of the nine symptoms since childhood. My oldest son was diagnosed through the VA after serving in the Army for five years, but I should have had him tested as a child. Someone in the Facebook group asked about nicknames that women have given their ADHD brains. Years ago, I began calling my loopiness living in the land of woo-hoo. My creative yet very neurotypical-brained husband wrote this poem when my chaos was at its peak. She had three kids. She had a full-time job, and she was the caregiver to her father with dementia. It was a gracious way for him to explain to friends and family why his wife couldn't get her crap together. I don't know if you would ever have occasion to use it, but here it is. So thank you, Jairus, for writing this very cute poem. I'm going to read it, and it's called Living in the Land of Woo-Hoo. Living in the land of woohoo is a place I want to be, a place that stretches 24 hours in a span of 63, where one can sleep and wake at leisure and be at work by nine, and a magic car that swiftly moves through the reality of time. 
Living in the land of woohoo is a place I want to be, where I accomplish all my tasks and still go home by three, where green frogs taste like chocolate and take no time to do, and all the people at my work talk just as much as you. And in the land of woohoo, we never have to clean, for all our stuff is put away and dealt with magically. We never have to look for things and nothing will be lost. No matter where we put our keys, we'll find them like a boss. The clock instills no fear in us. The hours are not real. You tell us when to be there. We'll be there as we feel. So do not try to change us or tell us what to do. For this is how we live our lives in this land we call woohoo. <laughs> By Jarris. I didn't ask if I could use the last name, so I'm just going to say Jarris. I love it because it's true, a lot of it, but it's also clever and funny. And we like that, right? A sense of humor, a lightness. It's not about shame. So thanks again for sharing that. So Today, I am going to talk about ADHD and sleep, and I've got to tell you that probably two years ago, I did all this research on ADHD and sleep because so many listeners had asked, please do something on ADHD and sleep. And I don't know what happened, but it was just so boring. You know, just listening to the term sleep hygiene makes me want to take a dagger to my eye. (laughs) Not really, but sort of. And I couldn't find anything particularly exciting to talk about when it came to sleep and ADHD. It was just the same old stuff. And then on top of it, I don't know what I did with the research. I don't know what I did with my notes. They just up and disappeared. So I just kind of let it go. But Attitude Magazine, I think it was probably last fall, so maybe maybe almost a year ago, I did an article for them on revenge bedtime procrastination. And they have since asked me to do a webinar on revenge bedtime procrastination with Dr. Christine Lee, the procrastination coach, because I mentioned in the article that she was the first person that I heard use the term. So I decided that I better get back into sleep and brush up. And so that's what I've been working on. And I've got to tell you, I was able to find a lot of new information. And I'm actually so excited to deliver this to you because it's not the typical, I mean, I'll go into, you know, the sleep hygiene, yawn, but there are some other things that are new that are just so fascinating to me, and I have had a ball learning about them. So I'm super excited to share them. So let's dive in. Okay, so it is no surprise, right, that people with ADHD struggle with ADHD not only during the day, but guess what? They also struggle during the night. And although the DSM The Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. You know how much I love that name. But anyway, the DSM did mention restless sleep as part of the diagnostic criteria for ADHD back in the 1980s. But today, there's no mention of it at all. And this is, I understand, because the DSM states that symptoms need to be present by the age of seven. 
And guess what? Sleep problems typically start really creeping up around the age of 12. By age 30, 70% of ADHD adults report that it takes an hour or more for them to fall asleep. And for a lot of us, especially women who often struggle with sleep, what we've discovered is it gets worse as we age, right? So once we approach perimenopause and menopause, we get a double whammy. So women who don't have ADHD start to struggle with sleep. So you can imagine what happens to those of us who have always struggled with sleep. So what happens is someone shows up at their doctor's office. They're already diagnosed with ADHD. And rather than think, well, maybe the ADHD is also causing this person's sleep problems, the party line is that if you're taking stimulant medication, then that must be what's causing your sleep problems. And this often doesn't make sense because it's likely that the sleep problems were there all along. So that means that sleep problems often they're not really even linked to ADHD, right? In fact, there's no scientific literature that I know of that lists ADHD as an actual cause of sleep problems. Now, all you have to do is just talk to anyone with ADHD, right? There's always some problem related to sleep. We can struggle with falling asleep. Many of us are night owls. Sometimes we're even more active and energetic at night. <laughs> I often call us vampires. I call my daughter that. She lives in New York City. And um, her and her friends are literally running around at 5 a.m. I'm not that much of a vampire, that's for sure. So anyway, we try and go to sleep and we can't shut off the thinking, right? Our minds do that racing thing. And if we're prone to worry and rumination and or catastrophizing, that's exactly when our minds click on, right? So we've got this hyperactivity of the mind. We can also struggle with staying asleep. So once we're in bed, we're actually able to fall asleep but then we can't stay asleep. We tend to be restless sleepers, light sleepers. We're tossing and turning. What else can we struggle with? Well, getting up in the morning, right? If you can't fall to sleep at night, <laughs> it stands to reason you can't get up in the morning. And this is the one I hear about from so many women. So you struggle with getting to sleep. You're tossing and turning. You're waking up throughout the night. Now you're finally asleep and it's time to get up. And it's like waking up the dead. You can't get up. You're groggy. You're grumpy. You're tired. And in the case of my son, thankfully, he's not like that anymore, but he used to be. You're not really awake until like noon. What else? Well, we can also fall asleep when we're bored. You know, you see students who are in class and they're totally bored and all of a sudden they almost crash to the floor, right? This started to happen to me when I was driving in college, which is so dangerous but it only happened when I was on the freeway. So it was those long, monotonous stretches of road. It never happened when I was driving around town and I had to stop at stop signs and I could see, you know, I had the windows rolled down. I could see what was going on around me. There was, um, it wasn't boring, right? Now, by the second time this happened, I figured out that it only happened when I was driving home from college. So I stopped driving home from college alone. I would go with a friend, either in their car or mine. I couldn't be alone driving that distance. And by the way, they call this kind of sleep disturbance intrusive sleep. The last kind of sleep disturbance, but the one that I still struggle with today, it's not about falling asleep, staying asleep, or getting up in the morning. 
or falling asleep when I'm bored. No, it's about what we were talking about before, my inability to get myself into bed. Remember that thing called revenge bedtime procrastination? And I know that many of you struggle with this. So let me set the stage. So your days are filled with too much to do, taking care of work, family, the home, friendships, whatever, right? And finally, it's late at night and there are no last minute to do's, no work, no kids, not even a husband distraction. And the only thing left is this need that we feel to wring out every last bit of life out of that day. Because I don't know about you, but I can't think of a bigger waste of life than sleeping. Oh my gosh. There's so much to do. There's so much to see and so little time. So anyway, I want to do now what I want to do for as long as I want to do it. And I may start at 11 p.m., maybe 10 p.m., And all of a sudden, I look up at the clock, and it's 2 a.m. or even later. You know what I'm talking about here, right? So my reward for everything that I did during the day is a little revenge bedtime procrastination. And this can take the form of crappy, mindless television, a hobby, doom scrolling. Yeah, I do that on Twitter. Other social media, talking on the phone for hours. By the way, that is not mine. Are you kidding me? I'm not letting anyone else into those delicious last hours. But it can be anything. But usually it's something that literally adds nothing positive to your life. At least if I was talking on the phone, I would be making connections, right? But anyway, so what ends up happening to me at least is you end up going to bed way too late. There's no positive emotion. You're beating yourself up, right? Because you wish you would have just gone to bed earlier. And you wake up in the morning, and if it's really bad, you wake up much later than you'd like to, and it just sets the whole next day off on, well, a less than positive footing. Of course, there are also those of us who are so distracted during the day that we're up late just to get our work done. And that one, that one's a lot more serious because you don't even feel like you have a choice, right? You're stressed out, you have too much work to do, and so you're staying up late to get it done because you feel like it's the only way that you can cope with this workload. So that's something that's completely different. Now, sleep, we know, is so essential to any brain, good sleep, but especially to an ADHD brain. If you don't get enough sleep, you're going to end up with all kinds of health problems, a weakened immune system, dysregulated metabolism. You're going to be grumpy. And your executive functions, they're going to be even more impaired. And that's something we already have so little of, right? So our memory gets worse. We can't concentrate. Our problem-solving abilities are affected. We may be more hyperactive or more inattentive. And if you struggle with any other mental health problems, because we know there are so many comorbidities, right, to ADHD or with ADHD, if there's anxiety or depression, a lack of sleep is going to make all of that so much worse. Sometimes your sleep can be so dysregulated that it's actually the cause of the problem. So what could be the reasons why we would struggle more with sleep if we have ADHD? Well, depending on the doctor, it's common that if your life seems chaotic, disorganized, and unplanned, a doctor or a therapist may blame the sleep problems on those very things. They rarely think, well, maybe this disordered sleep is actually the result of ADHD. 
Because think about it. Doesn't it make sense that if you have ADHD, if you're also hyperactive and whether hyperactivity is in the body and mind, so your combined type, or the hyperactivity is just in your mind, in which case you'd be more likely to be the inattentive ADHD type, very few of us you know, we're purely hyperactive. So when you're trying to sleep, you're still going to experience that hyperactivity, that restlessness. I mean, it's still there, right? It doesn't matter if it's the morning or if it's the night. You jump into bed, everything is quiet, there's no one to disturb you, and there you are alone with your thoughts. Some of us are also really sensitive to stimulant medication. And so if we take them late in the day, of course, that can cause problems with sleep. But from what I hear, that is actually less of a problem than we think. So if your stimulant medication is causing problems with your sleep, there's actually ADHD medication. It's called the Daytrona patch. That's fantastic because it's the only medication where you can actually just remove the patch and shut it down right then and there or shortly thereafter. So what else could be the reasons why with ADHD we struggle more with sleep? Well, we struggle with time. We don't see time. We don't feel time passing. We know now and not now, right? But not much else. So the thought is that our lack of an internal clock means that our circadian rhythm, our circadian clock in the brain is off kilter. And I'm going to go into that more a little bit later. It's fascinating. What's interesting to me is that I've heard many people with ADHD say that they sleep better when they're out in nature, when they're camping. I have just always felt and known that we are definitely connected to nature. So that kind of makes sense to me. And I see that in the women I work with all the time. I do believe that ADHD is evolutionary and we're leftover hunters in a farmer's world. That's what works for me. So this kind of makes sense to me that we would feel more in tune with our sleep cycles when we're actually out in nature, you know, like when we're camping. So what are some strategies or workarounds to get to sleep? Now, I alluded to this at the very beginning. The two words that I always hear whenever there's any discussion of how to alleviate problems with sleep, and you know I just hate them. They just sound so boring. You know the words, right? Sleep hygiene. I just like, I can't. That's literally what I think when I hear those words. So this is the deal. I'm going to give you the answers that you typically hear that all the experts talk about, right? When sleep and ADHD are discussed because they are medical professionals. And I think there is some great truth to all of these for some people. But then I promise that I'm going to share some more interesting options after that. So the first thing that I want to say is you are the expert on you. So try these things out and see what, if any of them work for you. I should also take, you know, the time to say that, of course, I'm not a medical doctor. Whatever you're going to do, you need to check it out with your medical professionals first and just make sure that you've got their, their buy off, or at least you've discussed it with them. And then you've decided what's best for you. Okay. So in sleep, some people need white noise. Others need absolute silence. Some need pitch black. I've got to tell you that always terrified me, but the truth of the matter is you really have to pay attention to what 
actually works for you. You know, get everybody to tell you what the options are. Get the medical professionals to talk to you about this and then decide what you're going to try and see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So that, that pitch black one, as I said, it always terrified me. When I was a kid, we used to sleep over at our friend's house. And they had those blackout shades in their bedrooms. And I hate nighttime anyway, but I remember feeling so helpless in that bedroom because I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. And I was a big chicken anyway. And I kept thinking, you know, if someone's in this bedroom, (laughs) I am not going to know until literally their hand is at my throat. So since then, and my whole entire life, I have never even had window coverings on my bedroom windows. Granted, we live in the country. Our nearest neighbor is five acres away. But I wouldn't even know what time it was if everything was pitch black. I don't think I'd ever get up. The sun is actually what wakes me up. And I discovered there is good reason for the way that I feel. So let's talk about sleep hygiene and what the general rules are. Okay? So sleep hygiene rule number one. You need a bedtime routine that you follow every day. It shouldn't change much depending on if it's a weekday or a weekend, meaning you should go to bed at relatively the same time every day and wake up at the same time in the morning. And I can see your face because we hate routines, don't we? It's all about like, don't tread on my freedom, right? True. But Few things will make such a difference in reducing ADHD symptoms than getting good sleep. I know it's boring, but you need to try it. And I'm going to talk more about the routine and why the routine might be important to us. So if I can get you to buy off on the reasons why, maybe I can get you to try it. So hang on with me because I have some fascinating things to say about sleep and schedules. Okay, sleep hygiene rule number two, no naps during the day. Okay, I am not a napper. I think I've probably taken two naps my entire life, probably when I was sick. If I took a nap, I would never get up. Regardless, I know there are people who swear by naps, but if you're struggling with sleep, this would be the first place to start testing. I hate to tell you this, but research considers naps evidence of unhealthy sleep, okay? So that's one of the first things I would do. Try to do away with the nap and then see if you can go to bed earlier so that you can get up earlier. Okay, sleep hygiene rule number three. The bed is for sleep and sex, nothing else. No watching TV, no doom scrolling on your cell phone, no social media, no working in bed, eating in bed. I mean, what the hell with these Mother's Day breakfasts? (laughs) I don't get it. I don't do any stuff in bed. And I can't eat in bed, but I remember when my kids were little, they just, you know, they wanted to bring me breakfast in bed for Mother's Day. I think I did it once. And the whole time I was like, this is so gross. Get me out of this bed. Anyway, sleep hygiene rule number four, no caffeine at night. Basically, no caffeine after four o'clock. It causes more alertness. It causes your brain to race more. It's also a diuretic, right? The last thing you want to do is get to sleep and then have to get up because you have to go to the bathroom. So for me, it's not just coffee. Well, I can't do caffeine. So if I'm going to be drinking coffee, it's decaf. But 
I don't even do that after dinner. I totally cut myself off from any liquids after dinner because I know if I don't, I am literally going to be getting up at least once during the night and sometimes twice. I truly have a peanut platter. Okay. Sleep hygiene rule number five. No technology for at least an hour before bed. The light from cell phones, laptops, computers, throws off your sleep cycle. And I'm going to tell you more about that in a bit. Fascinating research. Sleep hygiene rule number six. Remember when I was talking about how much I hated those blackout shades when I was a kid? Well, that kind of leads us to sleep hygiene rule number six. You need to sleep in a dark room. I know there are people that swear by sleep masks and they are recommended. I'm always afraid I'm going to be murdered and I'm not going to know about it until it's too late. But curtains are probably good and as little light from clocks and any kind of tech as possible. I will tell you, I don't really follow that rule. My room is dark, but the light from the moon shines in, which I understand that's okay light. But I bet you someone who was um, an expert in sleep, they would say the room is not dark enough. But maybe it's anxiety. I don't know what it is. I just can't sleep with it darker than the way it is. And as I said, we don't have any curtains on the windows. So the, the moon comes in and we do have across the room an alarm clock that absolutely provides some light. I used to have... Um, So we have a deck that runs all the way through the back of the property. And again, you know, I'm always, (laughs) I'm always worried about something that someone that's going to come murder me. So, um, I used to have lights on, um, in the back of the house and I've since turned those off. So it's basically just the light of the moon. And I do think that I sleep much better. So what else? Believe it or not, despite the constant warnings about stimulant medication and how it disrupts sleep or how it can disrupt sleep, many doctors who really understand ADHD have had tremendous success in reducing ADHD sleep-related problems. So tossing and turning in, you know, tossing and turning, getting in your head, all the rumination. They've had tremendous success by prescribing stimulant medication right before bedtime. So think about it. When stimulant medication works, it calms restlessness, right? So why wouldn't this work at nighttime too? Now, we know that ADHD is rife with comorbidities. So it could also be that your sleep problems are not related to your ADHD at all, but instead you have a comorbid sleep disorder instead. So if we're dealing with a sleep disorder, a sleep study is recommended. And what they're going to do is they're going to test your brain waves, your blood oxygen levels, your breathing, and other things to see if a sleep disorder is present. You might also be prescribed prescription medications to help you sleep. Now, I'm not a doctor and I'm certainly not a sleep disorder expert. I'm not going to go into all the potential medications and supplements. That's not what I'm talking about here. Okay. So what do you do if you have problems waking up in the morning? Well, it's all about the plan, right? Many of my women talk about the fact that they've had great success putting their medication and a glass of water on their nightstand. So what they do is they wake up an hour early, they take their medication, they go back to sleep, and then when they wake up, of course, they feel a lot more awake because their medication has kicked in. 
The other thing that I do is I don't use snooze alarms. So I put my alarm clock away from the bed. So I have to literally get out of my bed and walk across the room to turn it off. Now, I have to tell you, since I started getting up out of bed and going right to my gym, getting on my Peloton, I don't have trouble getting up. I can't even remember the last time that I had trouble getting up. A couple of days ago, I had trouble feeling alert, but I was able to get up just fine. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to tell you about that too. So I want to share with you now some strategies based in science that I haven't heard about before. But when I learned about them, it made me really excited about sleep. So there is this new podcast that I've been listening to called Huberman Labs. And it is, um, the host is a gentleman named Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's a professor at Stanford Medical School. And I think he's a professor in neurobiology and ophthalmology. And these podcasts of his, they're like two hours plus long. And I got to tell you, normally I could never do a two hour plus podcast, but he is so interesting and so high level but also so approachable and so understandable that I am just, this is my podcast of 2021. I can't rave enough about it. So he had two podcasts. I think he has more than two on sleep, but the ones that I have listened to were on sleep. And I want to share with you what he taught me, what I learned. So what we do when we're awake, this is key, is connected to how quickly we fall asleep. So whether or not we can stay asleep and how we feel when we wake up the next morning. Now, I was talking about the circadian rhythm in the body and brain earlier. So we all have this clock that exists in our brain and in every animal's brain as well, I believe, that determines when we're going to feel sleepy and when we're going to feel awake. And this is key. This was fascinating to me. Guess what governs that circadian clock? Sunlight. So most of us wake up sometime around when the sun rises, within an hour or so from when the sun rises. So how does this happen? Well, our system generates a hormone called cortisol. We've all heard about cortisol, right? It's released from your adrenal glands. And when we're talking about cortisol, at least when I've been talking about cortisol, we're typically talking about the hormone that's released when we're stressed, right? But this is the thing. Cortisol, like everything, there's two sides to everything, right? Can also be good. So if you didn't have cortisol coursing through your body, you wouldn't get up in the morning. So along with the cortisol, there's also a pulse of adrenaline and a pulse of epinephrine. And this is what alerts your whole body to get up. However, it's really important that this happens early in the day because when this cellular timer is set off in your body, dictates when melatonin will be released. Now, I know you've heard of melatonin, right? Melatonin is what makes you sleepy, and it's triggered to go off about 12 to 14 hours after you get that pulse of cortisol, adrenaline, and epinephrine. So the wakefulness signal triggers when the sleepiness signal is going to go off. 
So you wake up, you open your eyes, and light comes into your eyes. So it's that electrical signal is sent to this central clock in your body. So if we're in a dark room, there isn't enough light to trigger that cortisol, right? And so what ends up happening is you screw up the cortisol melatonin rhythm. So I was right about all those blackout shades, right? I like to wake up to the sunlight. Now, the thing is, we need a particular type of light that comes from sunlight when it's low in the sky. So what do we need? We need early morning sunlight, like around sunrise or shortly thereafter. And you need the sunlight in your eyes as close to waking as possible. Now, other light works too, but not nearly as well as early morning sunlight. Now, I'm not talking about harsh light that's, you know, hurting your eyes. This is not about seeing the sun. This is about setting your clock through sunlight. So you don't need to see the sunlight. In fact, people without vision, people who are blind, they still maintain the neurons that set the central clock. So even though they have no vision, if they go out into the sunlight, they are going to set their circadian clock. All you need is two to 10 minutes of bright sunlight exposure, get this, on a regular basis. Remember, I was talking about the schedules and the structure. And it doesn't have to be right when you get up, but it has to be as early as possible. So what Andrew Huberman was recommending was a light meter, you know, like the kind that photographers use. So I downloaded an app on my phone that's literally called Light Meter, right? Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to check the lux, which is a measure of photon energy or light. And if you download this light meter and then you go outside, you can see how bright it is outside. And what you need is 10,000 to 50,000 lux to set your circadian clock. So what happens if you're, say, in New York City in the financial district, right, where those buildings are all so tall? You know, my son, when he started school, he's a sophomore now, he started as a freshman. And because it was during the time of COVID, it was last fall, we had to quarantine for 14 days. So for three weeks, we were in an apartment in the financial district. It was the nicest apartment I could get for the best deal. And so I went ahead and did that. And I've got to tell you, by the second week, I was totally depressed because there's no sunlight. It's just dark all the time because the buildings are so tall. So what happens if you're in New York City, you know, in the financial district and You can't see any sunlight or you're in parts of Norway or Alaska that have so little sunlight. Well, it still works, but you're just going to have to go outside for longer, sometimes much longer. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what if I get ready for work and then I jump into the car and light is streaming through the windshield or I sit at my desk and light is coming through the window there? I mean, that's good. It's better than nothing, but apparently it's 50% less effective to have light come through a window. And the way you can test this is you can go take your light meter app, right? And you can go outside to check what the Lux reading is. And then you can go inside and test the Lux with artificial light or the light that's coming through the windows inside, right? And you're going to see that you get light in both those instances, but 
you may not be getting enough light to set these cortisol melatonin rhythms and set your circadian clock. Now, once the sun is way overhead, it's too late to time the cortisol pulse. You remember that pulse that you need to set your clock. And if you get a late cortisol pulse, like it's six o'clock or seven o'clock, and let's say it's still sunny, we have, you know, we're in daylight savings, and you go outside, what they say is that this may be the cause or effect of depression and anxiety disorders. So if you have no sunlight, then of course you can use artificial light. I understand that it should be light that comes directly over you that simulates sunlight or that has a lot of blue light. Blue light on the retina is great during the early part of the day. Now, I don't know about you, but I use readers and I just bought all new readers from this fabulous company, but I bought the readers and I think maybe they just all come with it, the block blue light, because I heard that blue light is dangerous to your eyes. So of course now all my reading glasses block blue light. I was worried about being on the computer all the time and, you know, all that blue light. But now science is showing that that's not good. Now, it may be great to wear those readers in the evening when you want to block blue light. We'll go into that in a second, but not in the morning. So what about sunglasses? I have to tell you, I'm constantly telling my son to put on his damn sunglasses because he's going to ruin his eyes. He never listens to me. He hates wearing sunglasses. And guess what? I am only partially right. He should not wear sunglasses in the morning hours. Just like windshields and windows, sunglasses slow this process. So it's going to take much, much longer. Now, I understand prescription glasses don't because they are actually helping you see better. But if you're in prescription sunglasses and you're in a car or you're inside and in the window is streaming light, you know, you're still not going to get as much light as if you went outside. In all cases that we've been talking about, if you look at light and it hurts your eyes, that's too much light. So stop it, right? You're going to burn your retinon. Some people have degenerative retinal disorders where all bright light is harmful to them. Of course, we're not talking about those instances. You know, in those cases, I guess you would have to get artificial lights. So what else keeps that clock anchored? Well, it makes perfect sense, seeing the sunset. So if you're viewing sunlight toward the end of the day, the neurons in your eyes are also signaling to your clock that, hey, guess what? It is now the end of the day. The other part of this circadian clock equation is bright light in the evening is going to screw up your circadian clock. So if you see bright lights at night, it's going to make you want to go to bed later and wake up later. Seeing the sunset, however, can protect against the negative effects of light later in the day. It makes me think about, you know, how, you know, all those, oh, you know, we're all regulated by the sun and the moon and the stars. And, you know, I used to think, oh, my God, just a bunch of hippy-dippy woo-woo. Well, I don't know. The more I'm reading about this, I'm like, you know, we are animals and creatures that really should live more by nature, right? I mean, it, it really makes sense to me. Now, and this makes sense to me too, not having bright light in the evening, guess what? It doesn't include candles and it doesn't include a fire. 
Those two things don't seem to influence our circadian clocks. What we're talking about are bright artificial light late at night. So what else can affect the timing of the clock? Isn't this fascinating, by the way? I was just blown away by this. Timing of food intake, timing of exercise, and of course, ingesting drugs and chemicals, both uh, prescription and recreational. And again, I'm not going to talk about those. Light, however, is the main way to affect your circadian clock. So it's better than, you know, what you're eating and when you're eating. It's better than how you're exercising and what you're exercising and and certainly better than ingesting drugs and chemicals. Now, I need to say something about exercise because you all know that I literally roll out of bed. I walk into my little itty bitty gym that I built and I get right onto my Peloton without fail every single weekday morning. Getting up, and this is probably why I can do it so easily, getting up and exercising will also affect your circadian clock. Light is still way more effective, but exercise will, after a couple of days, make you get up earlier in the morning. So if you're exercising first thing in the morning, after a couple of days, you're going to naturally start to wake up earlier in the day and it gets easier and easier. It's called an anticipatory circuit where you'll want to wake up at that same time every day. So your body will start to look forward to it and it will start adjusting because of my favorite thing, right? My favorite word, neuroplasticity. We're training our brain. And the same thing with waking up to sunlight. There's plasticity in these circuits, which makes it easier to do these things the more we do them. And I can tell you that is 100% true. It is not hard at all for me to get up in the morning. Super easy because, you know, and I never have to talk myself into working out anymore. It's just, it's a given. It's what I do. I get up and I go. And my husband will regularly say, I have no idea how you get up first thing in the morning and you just go work out. You know, I used to work out in the evening. Pre-kids, we would, you know, finish our work. We didn't have really much anything else to do. And we would go to the gym. But ever since I was diagnosed with ADHD, I realized that I would wake up in the morning And, you know, and I think it was just low dopamine, right? And I would wake up and I would just feel this sense of dread at times. And I had nothing to dread. I didn't know why I was feeling the way I was feeling, but it was just this ugh kind of feeling. And I don't get that feeling anymore because I work out in the morning and now I know why, right? So the other thing that I want to mention about sleep is how it affects learning. It is so important for learning. And this one study just blew me away. So I want to share it with you. So there was a study where subjects were charged with learning something, I think it was involving spatial memory. And so what would happen is they would hear a tone while they were engaging in whatever this exercise was, whatever this learning was, right? And then they would smell a certain smell while they were learning. So it was a tone or it was a smell and it would, I think, go back and forth, right? From tone to smell. And so then after they would participate in this learning, they would go to sleep. And they went through this cycle for several days on end. They would hear that tone. Um, I don't know if it was music. I don't know if it was a metronome. And or they would smell that smell. And they would go to sleep. And then they would start it again the next day. What they discovered is by learning this way, their rates of learning significantly increased. So 
What this teaches us is that you can cue the subconscious brain to learn better and faster. And I totally want to try this using, you know, essential oils or a metronome or, or a vibration, you know, like the haptic feedback that we get on our Apple watches. You know, I, I'm not quite sure how, but I want to test this. And, you know, I tell my son all the time, don't cram, don't pull all-nighters. You need time, days if you can, right? To sleep on the information you learn, to really get that into your subconscious, to really learn because that's how we learn best. And there's a woman, I've talked about her in you know my earlier podcast. Um, her name is Barbara Oakley and she barely got through school. And she's never said she has ADHD, but if you listen to her story, literally she has all the symptoms. And so anyway, she never, you know, she graduated maybe from high school. I think she was like, I barely got myself through, you know, wasn't planning on going to college. And so she enrolled in the army and I guess she was really bright and really good at her job. So as she got older, she basically learned how to hack how she learns. And lo and behold, she is now a professor of engineering and she's got a couple books out and she's got this one a book, actually, and a free video series that she did for Arizona State called Learning How to Learn. And I think you can find it on Coursera. And I remember when my son was in his junior year during the summer and he was changing schools again, he went to three schools in four years, he wanted to go stay with a family friend and travel through Europe. So we let him do it that summer. And I gave him the link to all these videos. And I had him, I said, all I want you to do is I want you to go through these videos. And he came back and he had figured out how to teach himself how to learn. I mean, part of it is, you know, the prefrontal cortex and age really plays a role in how developed our prefrontal cortex is. And, you know, Marcus was then just um, diagnosed with dyslexia and he's always said, yes, I have ADHD, but I don't have the executive function challenge. At least he doesn't have them anymore that a lot of kids and adults with ADHD have. I, I know I have much more executive function challenges um, than my son has. And so, you know, once he discovered he had dyslexia, then, you know, he, he kind of started, um, I mean, it's only been two months, but he's starting to figure out other ways to learn. But I really do believe that learning how to learn that video series. And as I said, there's a book. I read the book. He went through the video series. I went through some of the video series. But I really think it, it played a big role. He was able to teach himself how he best learned. So, as I said, I think you can find the video series on Coursera, and I will have links in the show notes. Regardless, regardless of what I'm saying, you need to try these strategies for yourself because, again, right, you are the best expert on you. So, anyway, I was doing a lot of research for this sleep podcast, right? And I don't typically struggle with sleep. Revenge bedtime procrastination is a big struggle of mine. But the other ones, I'm lucky that um, I've had little bouts, but I've never really, really struggled with those. But I've got to tell you, a couple of days ago, I don't know what happened, but I woke up and I just felt kind of blah, right? And normally when this happens, I work out and I just feel so much better. And on that particular day, it didn't seem to matter because usually five minutes into working out, you know, 70% of your heart rate for 20 minutes is usually what does it for most people to get that dopamine to fire. And it is supposed to be, so exercise is supposed to be as useful 
and as um, it works as well as a course of uh, stimulant medication. And for whatever reason, I just was really tired and I felt really weak and I just didn't feel that much better after I finished, you know, my Peloton ride. So I thought, you know, I was listening to these podcasts and I was doing this research. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to test this light thing. So instead of just jumping into the shower, which is what I normally do, I got my dog and I decided that I was going to do one lap around our property. So we live in the country on six and a half acres. And during COVID, I know I've mentioned this before, we didn't have anything to do. So my husband got on his tractor and he cut a track around the perimeter of the property that we tested it or not timed it, but we measured it. And um, it's about a half a mile. So it takes me usually about, I don't know, eight to 10 minutes to walk it, depending on what pace I'm going at. I don't walk very fast. So this particular time, I didn't put on sunglasses, which is what I would normally do. And I just walked that half a mile. And I have to tell you, by the time I got to my doorstep, I totally felt like my normal self. So I've been doing this a little backward, right? I work out first and then I do this 10 minute walk. And I've only done it for a couple days, but it has really made a big difference. And I think that what has been going on for me is as we are getting closer to daylight savings ending, and I have to tell you, I know nothing about time. I have no sense of time. I never know. The only thing that I somehow remember is fall, you fall backwards, and spring, you jump forward. But I still don't quite know what that means. I just know that we lose an hour. So I know that what's been happening is I wake up and it's pitch black when I get up. And so I'm wondering if that, just knowing what I know now about darkness and my circadian clock, I wonder if that's why I have been struggling a little bit more to get up and I just felt so crappy on that day a couple days ago. So when you think about it, you know, when we're talking about how to set the circadian clock and what we should test and try, I mean, when you think about it, what do most people do, right? We don't wake up and spend two to 10 minutes in the early morning sun. You know, we don't then work out. We don't do these things to activate our circadian clock. No, what we do is we wake up. We usually look at our phone. We turn on the TV. Maybe we're watching the morning news. We may get ready for the day. And then we put on our sunglasses, head out to the car. We get in the car you know, sometimes a few hours later, right? And we're looking through a windshield, we get to work, and then we sit in front of the computer with our blue light blocking glasses on. So we're doing nothing to activate our circadian clock. And what we know now is we need to anchor our clock to something regular, which will then help us with our metabolism, hormones, feelings of well-being. So frankly, just better mental health right? But we're not doing any of those things. So why not try them, right? One more thing I wanted to say. So one final strategy, I'm not going to let you go. You've heard this strategy from me so many times, and I'm going to keep going until you finally try it. Of course, we cannot go without talking about the pause, right? We're not good at that. We tend to be impulsive. We're like those kids in that study, you know, where everyone got a marshmallow and then the tester tried to convince those kids to wait five minutes 
And if they waited five minutes, then they'd get two marshmallows, right? So they wouldn't eat the marshmallow right away. They would hold on to the marshmallow. I don't know if it was five minutes or 15 minutes. And then if they did that, they would get two marshmallows. Well, we know that all the kids that plop that one marshmallow into their mouths were the ADHD kids, right? For us, it's now and not now. However, if we can pause long enough to remember our intention, right? I want to wake up early. I want to feel well-rested in the morning, and I want to feel ready to take on the day. I want to feel good and then connect that intention to, well, in order to do that, I have to go to bed earlier, and then I need to create a plan around how I'm going to get myself into bed earlier, right? We have to think about What happens when we start sitting in front of the television to watch, well, Love Island? What happens when we start scrolling Twitter at 11 o'clock at night? Well, ask yourself, well, what's happened in the past? Nothing good, right? Nothing good happens after 11 o'clock at night. So we have to recognize that the only reason we're doing what we're doing, doom scrolling on Twitter or watching Love Island is to avert boredom, but it's useless time spent. So maybe it's better that we just shut all this down and head for the bedroom. And then when we actually do that, when we, you know, get ourselves to head to the bedroom, because we're connecting to our intention, right? And we now have a plan and we're in bed. We have to really pay attention to how we feel. We need to connect all this because I bet you're feeling really proud of yourself. You're in bed and it's before midnight. That, that feeling of pride is positive emotion. That's a little squirt of dopamine. Hey, Tracy, good job. You're in bed, which means you're going to have a great morning tomorrow, which is going to turn into a great day. So we have to celebrate that, right? The fact that we got ourselves into bed, we have to feel that pride. And then in the morning, when you wake up, you've got to pause. Don't just jump out of bed. Check in with how you feel and feel that pride in yourself that, oh my gosh, I went to bed early for me and look, it's early and I feel great and I'm so proud of myself and we need to celebrate that feeling again. So then when it's 11 o'clock at night that evening, you're thinking, right, Ah, I could turn on Love Island or I could doom scroll Twitter, but remember how good I felt when I actually served my best interests, right? Last night, I went to bed early and I woke up. I was so proud of myself for going to bed early. I remember what that felt like. And then I woke up in the morning and I felt good and I woke up early And I remember what that felt like, being proud of myself, all those little squirts of dopamine, right? And so I want to feel that again. So I am going to go to bed now instead of turning on Love Island, right? Because I'm bored or getting on Twitter because I'm bored. I want you to start teaching yourself how to crave that good kind of dopamine and then how to give it to yourself. Does that make sense? One more thing that I want to say before I let you go. So when I first developed cortography, I had a student who, she was a young woman, and I think she may have gone to NYU. 
And she was an actress and a singer. And since graduating, she had tried all these different jobs. And she was terrible at most of them. And the ones she wasn't terrible at, she really disliked. And she was constantly beating herself up about the fact that she didn't like getting up at the crack of dawn. Hell, she didn't even want to get up until midday most days. And her jobs were typically, you know, you had to be in the office at nine. They were nine to five. And then she would go home at five. So she had been working these jobs as administrative, you know, assistants for banks and for corporations. And she had no passion for any of them. And she hated getting up that early. But she somehow felt, because she was basically fed this line, right, that these were the kinds of jobs that would make her successful. They were respectable. And as a young adult, these were the kinds of jobs that she should take. And I remember saying to her, because even then, I believe that we are all our own best experts. I remember saying to her, why are you beating yourself up about this? Who told you that if you're not up at the crack of dawn, that you're somehow lazy? You work your rear end off. You know, who told you that if you're not up at the crack of dawn, that you're not going to be successful? What if you worked a job that you actually had passion for? that worked with your circadian clock. And I remember she cried because she loved being up at night. That was when she felt most successful, right? That's when she actually paid attention to um, the fact that she felt really good. Getting up so early in the morning, she hated it. She never felt good. So there's something called delayed sleep phase disorder. And there's actually a gene that's responsible for this. And you know what society does to people that are different, right? So I was thinking about, you know, I see people that are performing in the theater or they're performing in clubs or they cater to, you know, nighttime pursuits. And I always think, how do you people do this? How do you do those jobs? I have always been the kind of person where I got to get up early. I got to get everything done. And then I can do what I really want, right? But I couldn't do what I really want first and then go to work really late. That would kill me. That is just not how my, what I know now, circadian clock works. But there are people who are at their best in the evening. And I'm sorry, we clearly need those people. So if you're a night owl and you feel great on that schedule, why not embrace it instead of beating yourself up about it? Oh my gosh. I mean, most of us could not do that. Now, if that's not you and you feel like craps because you're staying up too late and you're getting up too late, it's worth trying getting enough sunlight early in the day for a couple of weeks to see. Maybe that actually might reset your circadian clock. Okay. So, That is what I have for you for today. I hope you learned something new about ADHD and sleep. As always, you are listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. And if you like what you're hearing, please drop us a review. If you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic idea for this podcast, Also, feel free to write me at support at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. 
join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.